We turn in God's Word this morning to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 13. Gospel of Mark, chapter 13. As I mentioned last Lord's Day evening, I believe it was, um, going to take uh, several weeks to go through Mark chapter 13, um, merging it together with uh, the series that we've had of what does Scripture teach. In this 13th chapter, Jesus gives to us uh, his teaching on the future and uh, on his coming again. And so uh, we're, we're looking at it and saying, you know, there's a lot of thoughts, there's a lot of beliefs, there's a lot of theories out there. Uh, there's different ideas as to what happens uh, before Christ's return. Some even deny that Christ will be returning again. And so uh, it's important for us to know what does Scripture say, what does Scripture teach in that regard. But also we're continuing our journey through the Gospel of Mark. And uh, as I indicated then, once we've uh, finished chapter 13, we're going to take a break for a few months from uh, Mark, we'll come back to it uh, near the end of January and pick it up at chapter 14 um, as that'll fit in to that particular season of the year as well. But uh, one thing to think about, uh, even as we, before we read these words, is to ask the question, who more than anyone else would know what the future holds. Okay, so let me ask it this way. Do you think some pastor knows better than God? Do you think some writer of some futuristic type book describing in graphic detail when Christ may occur, come again, do you think they know better than God himself. Do you think there would be anything in regards to his coming that Jesus himself would not have revealed? See, I think what often happens is we underestimate this chapter of Mark and uh, along with it, its counterpart of Matthew chapter 24 and Luke chapter 21, we kind of tuck those aside and say, well, yeah, but Revelation is much more important. There's, there's a whole lot more given to us in, in Revelation than given here. I'm going to submit to you that Revelation is the expansion of Mark 13. It's not new information. It's not new details. It's not like, oh, this is going to happen. I think Jesus told us everything. I think Jesus clearly told us what is going to happen and what we need to know. Revelation is just adding in vision form that which he tells us here. And so rather than setting this aside and say, well, what about Revelation? Because, you know, all those predictors of when Christ is coming, they all tend to focus on Revelation. And so do you think that person who has said on such and such a date in such and such a year 
Christ is going to return. Do you think they understand Scripture better than the person who gave us the Scripture? So let's hear God speak to us. Let's hear what God tells us. Perhaps put those books aside. Perhaps they're unneeded. Perhaps they're unnecessary. All they are is best guesstimates, if anything. Let's hear what God, who knows when that day comes, says to us. Mark chapter 13. And as he came out of the temple, one of the disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he. And they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. And these are but the beginning of birth pains. Be on your guard. For they will deliver you over to consuls and you will be beaten in synagogues and you will stand before governors and kings for my stake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and the children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Thus far the reading of God's word for this morning. Let's bow in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, as we come to this passage of Scripture, a passage that has caused many different eschatologies, many different views, Father, we pray that we would see that through all of this, that our need is to be ready for the Lord Jesus Christ to return. Father, that we can truly see, say, come Lord Jesus, come quickly. Father, we pray for those that are apart from Christ, that through this message this morning, that the Spirit would work in their hearts to draw them unto yourself, that they would truly look forward to that day as well. We pray for Pastor Bob as he brings your word. Father, give him great clarity as he preaches. But Father, the words that we hear today are your very words for your people. All this we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Three things will break this section, these 13 verses this morning, down into three main points. First of all, that Jesus' teaching speaks of destruction. 
Secondly, that Jesus' teaching speaks of misreads. Thirdly, that Jesus' teaching speaks of persecution. So the section begins with informing us, as I told you uh, last week as well, that the, the section on the widow's might is what closes off, we could say, Jesus' temple ministry. He leaves. Um, and according to Mark's account, never to return again. So we're given the information as he came out of the temple. Remember, we're in the Passion Week. The triumphal entry has taken place. The cleansing of the temple has occurred. The cursing of the fig tree, the withering of that fig tree has been called attention to. It's been a couple of days of questioning where uh, regardless of its scribes or Sadducees or Pharisees or Herodians, there have been those who have come to try to trip Jesus up. It has been a couple of days of great teaching, pointed and directed teaching, the parable of the tenants, directed and aimed, focused upon the religious leaders, teaching uh, about the resurrection that is to come, teaching about the true essence of life, the two great commandments, teaching about the falsehood of the appearance of religion, but denying the heart thereof and calling attention to a poor widow. Now he leaves. And as he leaves, one of the disciples says, what great, wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. The older I get, the more understanding I am of these guys. I'm more understanding of their humanness. I think when I was younger, I always kind of looked at these guys and said, Oh, guys, why do you say the dumbest things? You blurt out things. You, you, your statements are so ill-timed. Sometimes your actions just are so bad. Not, not in the sense of sinful, but just bad. The older I get, maybe it's because I fall into that trap more and more. The older I get, the more I understand these guys' humanness. Not that that's an excuse. Not that that's some way to cover it up. But I get it a little bit more. They've just left. Jesus has been teaching and talking. And one of them, or a couple of them, blurred out, Look at the beautiful buildings. What wonderful buildings. They probably don't know what else to say. They probably are kind of befuddled by all that has happened and all that's taught in this day and everything that has gone on. They're, they're kind of like, we don't get it. We're, we're, well, let's at least call attention to the buildings. Aren't the buildings nice? I want you to note they call attention to two things, the buildings of the temple complex. And they were wonderful buildings. 46 years, Herod the Great, 
had been involved in their construction. The stone that is not covered with gold is of pure white marble. There are nine massive gates, eight of which, I, as I've read through it, are, are overlaid with gold. The ninth is a huge bronze gate so large that the estimate is that the amount of cost for the bronze gate actually was more than the cost of the other gate. It was huge. The roof on the temple structure itself is gold. This is a beautiful, beautiful building. Even as they walk out, after 46 years of construction, they're still working on the thing. They're still beautifying it. They're still adding to it. In the sunlight of a typical day in Jerusalem, the thing gleams. It's beautiful. So their statement is not a, a, a lie. Their statement is not wrong. It is a wonderful building. And note that they call attention to the stones. The stones. Why are they calling attention to the stones? Because the stones are massive. Anywhere from 50 to 60 feet long, from 9 to 15 feet wide, and somewhere between 7.5 to 15 feet high. Massive stones. Now, I give you those statistics. Most of you can kind of figure that out. Kids, you're probably thinking, give me something to compare it to. Okay. Maybe you've driven with your parents sometime and you're riding in the car and you stop at a railroad crossing and, you know, the lights are flashing, the little arms are down, and you're sitting there and you're watching and you're watching the train engines go by and maybe a few petroleum cars, but then you get those box cars, okay? You know, nowadays they do some fancy painting on them, sometimes bad words, sometimes really nice artistic work, right? And then you see them go by, sometimes the doors are open, sometimes the doors are closed, but they're those big things that look like big boxes. Here's the comparison. Those box cars are about the same size as the stones that the disciples are talking about. What massive stones. Hand chiseled. If they followed the pattern, we don't know for sure. We think they did that if they followed the pattern of Solomon's temple, they were all chiseled perfectly to set in place outside of Jerusalem and then hauled in. To even think about how you move a stone like that, how you get it set in place. Certainly the job of an expert mason, is it not? So their statement, yes, what Wonderful buildings. What 
massive, wonderful stones. But notice Jesus' response. How surprising it must have been to them. How off guard it must have taken them. And, and how they must have thought, oh, we stepped in it again. Or oh, we said something again and look what happened. We thought we were just making some innocent comment and look what happened to, to this statement of ours. But beyond that, the implication of what Jesus' words mean. Verse 2, Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. All of this beauty is going to be gone. A total demolition. Yeah, you can see the disciples' minds working. How, how's anybody going to ever move one of those stones? How's that ever going to happen? How could they ever topple this? Why would anybody destroy this beauty? Why would anybody undo this? This is the temple. It's going to last forever. It's never going to change. Jesus' words come as a complete shock. No, there's going to be a total demolition. Now, let's not leave this in mystery. This happened. That already occurred. Verse 2 has already happened. It already took place. It took place in 70 AD. The emperor Titus of the Roman Empire comes to, with the army of Rome, comes to Jerusalem to quell a rebellion. The Jews have risen up. They're going to shake off the Romans once for all. Uh, the Rome, Rome has come in with the army and has systematically pinned the Jews into the city of Jerusalem. There are hundreds of thousands of people. Now, as Rome comes, they go, pick up our stuff, let's get to Jerusalem. Jerusalem will save us. The temple will save us. Jews had been crying that throughout Jeremiah's time even. They should have learned the lesson of history. From what we know through Josephus, uh, the Jewish historian, it was not Titus' intent to destroy the temple. That Rome generally appreciated it. It wasn't like they were a bunch of ISIS fighters that come through and destroy all the relics and everything. Rome appreciated architecture. It was actually his intent to keep it intact, but to use it for a Roman god. Maybe that's why this occurs. But one of the soldiers, we're told, uh, threw a torch into the temple itself. The thing began to burn. And uh, finally, when word of that reached the emperor, he said, just tear the whole thing down. And down it came. Hundreds of thousands of Jewish people are killed. And the temple is demolished. So when you come to this verse, it's not like, oh, this is something yet to happen. No, this occurred. This took place. The prophetic word of Jesus happened. This isn't something, well, we have to rebuild the temple and then destroy it again. No, it happened. 70 A.D. 
Jesus' words of destruction. But secondly, Jesus then speaks of misreads. Because notice what happens. Verse 3. The disciples now, now they're sitting on the Mount Olives. Okay, as they were leaving, that exchange took place. And you can well imagine they're walking along and they're thinking, okay, we get it. We, we understand because we have the perspective of looking back through history. The disciples are living through it and going, they're probably talking to one another. What's he talking about? How's this going to happen? Well, when's that going to be? So as Jesus is sitting on Mount of Olives opposite the temple, meaning he can see it, He's looking at it. These four disciples come to him with a question. When will this occur? But there is something in their question I need to add to. Not add to their question, but point out. They ask, verse 4, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign when, now here's the important word, all these things will be accomplished. What are all these things? Jesus only talked about the destruction of the temple. But they're saying, they're asking him about a broader question. Their question is specific about the temple, but then their question morphs into a more general question. So they're saying to him, when will the temple be destroyed? And... When will the rest of what you have told us about the kingdom take place? Because they have rightly understood there is a connection between the destruction of this temple and the kingdom of Jesus Christ. So they're asking for both. When will the temple go down and when will the kingdom occur? And everything else you've told us about the end. In the section we have today, Jesus is answering the question about the temple. What we have next week is a transition. And the week after that, the Lord willing, he is speaking only of his second coming. But everything that we're looking at in verses 1 through 13 has occurred. Because notice how Jesus says this. See that no one leads you astray. And then Jesus goes on to say there are going to be several false things, several misreads. Don't think it's going to occur then. Don't think it's then. Don't think it's then. Don't misread the signs. Well, what misreads are there? One, there is the misread of verses 5 and 6, the false claims of Messiahship. After Jesus ascends, many other Jewish, not Christian, not from Christian sources, but from Jewish sources, because remember the Jews reject Jesus as the Messiah. The Jews reject that Jesus is the one who, who's going to deliver them from the Romans. That didn't pan out. They killed him. They don't believe he's risen from the dead. They don't believe he's the Messiah. But other men did arise from that period between, let's say, 30 A.D. 
and 70 AD, when the temple is destroyed, several Jewish men arise, come out of the people, and say, I am your Messiah. I am the one who is going to save you. I am the Christ. Each leads a rebellion of sort that is put down and destroyed. Perhaps the, 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 the guy who was the most influential it was a, a, Jewish Ethi, or a Jewish Egyptian who came to Jerusalem, proclaimed himself to be the Christ, gathered 30,000 people as adherents that lived on the Mount of Olives. Which ended, I believe, it's either Festus or Felix coming in. Remember the governors in Paul's time who come in with a force and kill a bunch and disperse others. So time and time again, between 30 A.D. and 70 A.D., the destruction of the temple, there were these guys who came, I'm a Christ, I'm a Christ, and Jesus is saying, don't listen, don't listen, don't follow, don't be misled. There's going to be political struggles, verses 7 and 8. Nations are going to rise against nations, which is rather interesting because Rome is known and the Roman Empire is known as a time of peace. But interestingly, after the ascension of Jesus, the Roman Empire begins warfare once again. Sorry to say it, but their number one target happened to be Britain at the time. That's who they were looking at, and they began aggressive campaign against the Brits. But there were also internal wars. That took place. Civil war. Nation will rise against nation. There will be civil wars. All of that takes place before 70 AD. But Jesus is saying, look, when you hear of these wars, when you hear of these things, don't be thinking, that's it, that's it. No, this, is, this is but the birth pains. Natural disasters. Notice the end of verse 8. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginnings of birth pains. The earthquake of Pompeii that sooner or later they believe gave uh, impetus to the volcanic eruption that was going to take place. But there was in, I believe it's 64 AD, a huge earthquake in Pompeii. We know from the New Testament there is a famine in the Middle East particularly in Jerusalem, because the churches are gathering money for famine relief in Jerusalem to care for their brothers and sisters in Christ. All of this took place. It's not like we have to somehow extrapolate from this and say, well, I wonder when that was. Was that 1912? Was that Jesus is saying, before the destruction of the temple, this is all going to happen, and it all happened. It all took place. The word of the prophet came true. That's how you tell the words of the prophet, by the fulfillment of his words. He's told us what's going to happen before the temple is destroyed. It did happen. His words are true. But then he picks up, verse 9 through 13, the fact that another thing that is going to take place before the destruction of this temple is persecution is going to come. 
And you need to be prepared for it. Look at verse 9 with me a moment. Jesus says to be on your guard. And with that he introduces this paragraph. Be on your guard. The word that's used here means more the idea to see beyond. It's not just to see the event, but to see what the event points to. It's that idea of perception, to be able to perceive, to see ahead of that which is truly occurring, to observe in an understandable way. To observe not just with... Well, l- let me put it this way. Okay? Some of you like to watch football. Okay? So it's, it's the difference between watching a play in live action and watching it in slow motion. In live action, you, you watch the play unfold and maybe a guy gets tackled and then he fumbles the ball. And you go, well, how could he do that? And then they slow it down and you see the action that's taking place, small segment by small segment, and all of a sudden you go, oh, I get it. I see what happened. Looked to me like he just dropped the ball. Oh, no, I see what, that's what Jesus is saying. Be on your guard. Observe, perceive, see what's really happening. When, what? Pick it up at verse 9. For they will deliver you over to consuls and you will be beaten in synagogues and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. You're going to be persecuted. But the persecution is going to come from religious institutions. And those religious institutions are going to turn you over to the political Now, does that happen? Read the book of Acts. The book of Acts is the fulfillment of those words. It happens over and over and over again. They're brought before the Sanhedrin. They're brought into the synagogues. They're beaten. They're whipped. Then they're brought off to a governor to decide their case, to a Felix, to a Festus, to a Herod Agrippa, ultimately to Caesar himself, as Paul appeals. This occurs. Notice the next verse. And the gospel must be preached to all the nations. It was. That's not some futuristic text. That's not a text Jesus is saying in the midst here. Oh, by the way, way in the future, all the nations. Okay, like it's got to go to Angola, and then it's got to go to Cameroon, and it's got to touch all these nations before I can come Every single nation has to. No, Jesus is saying it's already occurred. It will by 70 AD already occur. You say where? Read the book of Acts. Pentecost. Those people who are converted go back to the nations of the world. They make a difference so that the world comes to know. Paul's journeys. The world comes to know. The gospel was preached to the whole world of that day. 
all the nations. Hurt. It doesn't say every single person. That isn't what the text says. It's the nations. It's the peoples. Here, the gospel. The book of Acts records the fact of that event. But that persecution is not going to come only from religious institutions and political institutions. It's also going to come from families. Verse 12. And brother will deliver brother over to death and the father his child. And the child will rise against the parents and have them put to death. Persecution comes from one's own family. So much so that we can also say by the verse 13, Jesus says, and you will be hated by all men for my sake. Culture will turn against you. The society as a whole will be your enemy. That all took place, verifiable, before 70 A.D. And in 70 A.D., Titus comes with the Roman army, and the temple is destroyed. It all took place. It all happened. The words of Jesus are true. See, now, what will often happen is that a text like this gets used by people to say, well, this corresponds to this date in 18-something or other and then 19-something or other. Jesus told them, this is what's going to happen before the temple is destroyed. When will these things happen? What things? The destruction of the temple, Jesus. When's that going to happen? Well, let me answer that for you. that is not to say that these things don't continue. That isn't to say that persecution doesn't happen today. Of course it does. Jesus was just saying before the temple is destroyed, persecution is going to break out, which it did. But that persecution continues. Today in your mailboxes, you're going to get a a little card because today is the day that uh, is set aside as uh, the time for the persecuted church to pray for the persecuted church, to remember those who suffer because of persecution. Certainly we see the fulfillment of this verse in our day and age today, do we not? That family will rise against family from religious institutions that punish believers, that punish true and faithful servants of the Lord, religious institutions come in and punish them for it. Families rise against families. What happens in a Muslim culture when somebody converts? They're reported to the authorities. What happens? They're killed. The false church the nations of the world, even families, culture itself. If you haven't read a newspaper lately, if you haven't watched 
regular news lately, if you haven't read some recent periodicals, let me wake you up, folks. The world hates us. They despise us as Christians. We are their enemy. They would, if they could, rid us from the planet. They want to silence our voice. They want to eliminate our presence. They do not want to hear of Jesus. But notice the promise that Jesus left them with. Notice how it ends. Because they, like us, are probably going, whoa, wait, wait a minute. What's going to happen to us? What does the world think of us? Verse 13, you will be hated by all men, by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. What a promise Jesus holds out. For those who persevere, for those who do not turn their back upon him, for those who do not leave, for those who hold true. Turn back with me, or forward with me, excuse me, to the Gospel of John, chapter 15. John, chapter 15. Here's the good news. See, don't read this as, as some sort of calamity over our head. Read this as good news. John 15, verse 18. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. Do you see the blessing of being persecuted for the name of Christ? I think oftentimes this, this we pray for the persecuted church, we feel so bad for them. Well, in a certain sense, I guess from a, from a certain perspective, yes, because of what they have to go through, the hurt, the pain, the death, the separation. But what does that persecution prove? That they're of Christ. That Christ chose them. That they belong to him. That they are his. And don't read that without going back to Matthew chapter 5 and thinking of those beatitudes and the words of Jesus, the very beginning of his ministry as far as what would happen. Listen to how he speaks about those who are persecuted. Blessed, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Why? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven, hated by the world, Loved eternally by God. Blessed. Blessed are you. 
Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. So they persecuted the prophets. Now we pray not for persecution. But if persecution comes, we see the beauty of the hand of our Savior upon us to be counted as Christ. How does the hymn writer put it? Jesus is all the world to me. Yes, he is. And great. Great is the reward of those who endure, who persevere, who hold to Christ, even in the midst of persecution. Let me ask you a question. Has Jesus' words in verses 1 through 12 come true? Has the prophet spoken truly? What does that tell you then about verse 13? It also is true. We need not doubt. We need not fear. If we're persecuted for righteousness' sake, great is the reward. You say, what's that reward? Face to face with Christ my Savior. And God's people say, Amen. Father, we do thank you for this true word, this true prophetic word of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That Father not only reminds us of the truth of all that he has spoken, but truth about these words that he speaks about in the coming weeks, about that second coming, about his coming again, and about our being gathered to him. But Father, this morning we do remember our brothers and sisters in Christ, young and old, parent and child, who do indeed suffer physically, emotionally, because of Christ. Oh Father, there are those even here in this room who do that. It's at the workplace, it's at their school, it's in their community. It's at a society meeting when they stand up and speak the truth and others sneer and laugh. When you speak to someone about the truth of Christ and they walk away laughing and thinking we're a fool. Father, in many ways that pales in comparison to many in this world who lose eyes, who lose tongue, lose hand, who lose child, who lose parent, who lose wife, who loses husband, who loses life itself. And yet, great is the reward. Thank you for the true prophetic word of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. And God's people say,